Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everyone. Welcome and happy Labor Day weekend for those of you here in the U.S. I uh, hope your weekend has been great. And uh, as we celebrate the final day of the three-day weekend, get ready to go back for a short work week. I uh, hope everybody is safe and healthy. And uh, we're going to get into some stuff on the political situations here in the United States. First, though, shout out to our friends over across the ocean, courtesy of Mint Wave Radio. Uh, Frazier and team, we appreciate you, and we are happy that you are part of the family. So let's get right into it, starting off always as we do with our medical update on COVID. We are at 94.7 million cases here in the U.S. One, uh, 0.047 million people have died from the disease, and 606 million people have received vaccination. Uh, over on the monkeypox side, we are currently uh, seeing levels of about 14,100 cases here in the U.S. so far. So, you know, clearly keeping safe, practicing what we need to practice in order to keep ourselves protected is still the order of the day. So let's make sure we keep doing that, all right? All right, let's get into our show. We got a busy show this time, a couple of things to talk about. And um, first thing we're going we're gonna to do is we're going to talk about a few facts. Um, when we talk about getting laws passed here in this country, most often we talk about how a, a bill is created in the U.S. House of Representatives and gets voted on and then if it passes there it then goes over to the u.s senate where it gets voted on again if there are any differences introduced between the two bills those get reconciled in a conference committee and then the bill is revoted in its final form uh, for approval and should it uh, uh you know pass both houses it then goes on for the president's signature to become law here in, in this country but uh, something that you know may not get as much attention is what goes on at the state level. And what I mean by that is there are uh, mechanisms in place within the states where laws can be uh, made into state law uh, through the process of what is called a ballot initiative. Uh, and what that is, very quickly, is a petition is drawn up and that petition is circulated uh, to get whatever the required number of uh, registered voter signatures are needed on that petition, depending upon which state you're talking about. And uh, if enough registered voters uh, sign, uh, the, the petition is submitted, the signatures are verified, and if everything is in order, then that measure gets added to the ballot in the next statewide election. So, you know, in addition to laws that impact our daily lives that come from the federal level, uh, most importantly or more importantly are the laws that are enacted at the state level as those more directly impact our lives. And give you a few examples. So we've seen coming out of... Um, uh, Texas and other states, um, bills regarding you know, voter registration and you know, other, other topics, uh, even the abortion issue, 
and so forth that were initially circulated as ballot petitions within the state and then should the um, the initiative be approved and added to the ballot and gets the required number of votes then that initiative becomes law which the governor of that state uh, is required to to sign and you know it it means that the law is put on the books without the uh, the interference or support or whatever from the state house and the state senate Uh, it is a way that a lot of uh, laws uh, at the state level wind up on the books Uh, it's also done you know down into the local levels as well well what I saw and what's come across my wire and you know again keep in mind that you know this is a citizens initiative Uh, it is not uh, being championed through your state senate and state legislature Uh, it is coming directly from the citizens instructing that the law be added to the books well the republicans um, and this comes from an article actually two articles one in the associated press and one in raw story Uh, that are talking about how the Republicans are now fighting to um, not only limit access to the ballot box, but increasing uh, the battle on what questions can even appear on ballots. And, you know, the the article uh, starts off with hundreds of thousands of people signed petitions this year backing proposed ballot initiatives to expand voting access, ensure abortion rights, and legalize uh, recreational marijuana in Arizona, Arkansas, and Michigan. And uh, yet voters might not get a say because Republican officials or judges have blocked the proposals from the November elections, citing such things as flawed wording, procedural shortcomings, or insufficient petition signatures. Uh, so to, to step out on that for a minute, when these, these petitions um, are ready to be filed, uh, they have to be in what you'll hear quoted as the proper format, close quote. And any variance from that accepted format can give the, um, the legislature grounds to dismiss the petition or to send it back to be redone or, or whatever, but in, in the end game to keep it off of the ballot. So, you know, and, and the, the actions that are being taken by uh, Republican lawmakers, uh, particularly in Arizona and Arkansas, not only are they, you know, scrutinizing these ballot petitions carefully, but they're also uh, proposing legislation to amend their state constitutions to make it harder to put citizen initiatives on the ballot. So what does that mean? That means that they are not only uh, working to control how you vote, but they are working to limit and control what you can vote for. Um, The right to submit a ballot initiative is enshrined in most, uh, if not all, state constitutions. And it, it is a way, as I said, for the citizens of a state to enact a law based on their wishes for that law to be enacted. 
regardless, uh, for the most part, as to what their elected officials would like to see. Uh, the advantage here is that you know uh, state initiatives or citizen initiatives uh, are not subject to as much influence by you know paid lobbyists and you know dark money and all of that stuff. And it is a way for you know initiatives and, and laws uh, that that are favorable to the wishes of the electorate get into the books uh, you know over or instead of or around the objections of the elected officials. Again, if the initiative gets the required number of signatures, it goes to, directly to the governor uh, who is um, required to uh, either sign it or to veto it. Uh, and that you know, opens up you know, another level of the process where it can be you know, recalled and, and resubmitted and so forth. But the Republicans in the, the mostly red states are fighting to limit what these initiatives can be, how they are submitted, uh, what the requirements are that you need to meet. So, you know, the article, and I'm, I'm citing the article on Raw Story here, uh, talks about in Republican Missouri, for example, voters have approved initiatives to expand Medicaid, raise the minimum wage, and legalize medical marijuana. An initiative seeking to allow recreational pot is facing a court challenge from an anti-drug activist aiming to knock it off of the November ballot. In Michigan, just this past week, um, members of the, the bipartisan board of state canvassers blocked initiatives to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution and expand opportunities for voting. Uh, so each measure had significantly more than the required 425,000 signatures, but GOP board members said the voting measures had, you ready for this, unclear wording, and the abortion measure was flawed because of spacing problems that scrunched some words together. And this is according to a report from the Associated Press. Uh, one of the most popular examples of the use of these initiative ballots uh, happened in 2018, where Florida voters had restored voting rights to uh, to felons who had served their time, you know, and were returning, you know, to to the 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 population. But even though that received overwhelming support and was approved, uh, the governor Ron DeSantis and lawmakers severely limited the constitutional amendment in the legislature. Uh, in Arizona, the primarily Republican-appointed Supreme Court recently blocked a proposed constitutional amendment that would have extended early voting and limited lobbyist gifts to lawmakers. The measure also would have specifically prohibited the legislature from overturning the results of president, presidential elections, excuse me, uh, which some Republicans had explored after then-President Donald Trump's loss in 2020. So, you know, what, what we're seeing, and, you know, we've talked about on this show, um, you know, the, the Southern strategy and the Republican strategies of controlling your access to voting and, you know, how you vote, where you vote, what you can, can vote for as being, you know, exercised in, in these 
measures. Um, and a lot of times the reasons that you see for these uh, initiatives being challenged are, you know, trivial to say the least. For example, as I just mentioned, one of the initiatives was being um, pushed back because the words were scrunched together. In other words, because of word processing errors, not content errors, but the fact that, you know, the text for whatever reason was sort of bunched together um, by the word processing software. So, you know, it, it is, uh, again, another example of the ways that the people in power uh, are, are working against the people that gave them that power, the people that voted them into office, and you know, are, are really just stepping over us, the, the citizens and the electorate. And this is something, you know, as we say, you know, call to action. Number one, you need to make sure that you are following what's going on in your state legislature. What initiatives uh, are they voting on? Are there any uh, citizen initiatives that are coming before your you know, state house and state senate? And if so, you know, what is the position of those bodies on that initiative? Uh, we should be, as always, communicating with our state uh, elected officials and let them know that, you know, this petition was signed by the required number of people. We want to see it go forward. And our expectation is that it will move through the process um, unheeded, you know, for, you know, any of these little minor infractions that they seem to be pulling out of thin air in order to stop these initiatives. So, you know, engagement is the key. We need to make sure that we are engaged with our legislators uh, so that we know that our work is being done and not the work of dark money, lobbyists, and so forth. And just to be clear, um, technical merits aren't the only reasons that these ballot initiatives uh, have, are in jeopardy. Uh, some legislators, uh, such as ones in Arkansas, uh, are looking to make the process even harder uh, saying that the initiative would require a 60% vote on the ballot in order to approve uh, citizen-initiated uh, ballot measures on future or, or future, future, excuse me, constitutional amendments. So, you know, they are actively looking to limit this uh, power and authority that the citizens have, and we need to be as actively looking at making sure they understand that if they are going to undo the will of the people, that there are remedies that the people can exercise, including you know electing replacements for them. So we'll keep you posted, and any new developments that crop up, you'll hear them right here on Fired Up. All right, so another story that I wanted to talk about, this one coming out of my favorite state for political chicanery, and that would be Texas. Um, and as you recall, I did a, uh, a piece on last podcast where the state of Texas had passed a law that said um, it is allowed for posters displaying the Texas flag, the American flag, and the words, In God We Trust, uh, to be posted in Texas schools uh, if they are donated by private citizens 
uh, and not paid for by the state, uh, which would violate separation of church and state. So in, in the update, uh, this coming out of the Dallas Morning News, and uh, it reports that a group of parents is demanding North Texas schools remove posters emblazoned with In God We Trust that were donated by a conservative Christian company. Uh, the uh, Kaplan Law Firm is issuing cease and desist letters to area districts that do not replace those signs with the new ones that are being donated by parents, which feature rainbow lettering. So, you know, the, the statute requiring schools to display posters of the national motto, if donated, also stipulated that such signs cannot depict words other than in God we trust or images other than the state and American flags. Well, in August, the um, Carroll Independent School District, or CISD, uh, trustees received a shipment of posters with the all capital letters displayed in white on a blue background above the American flag. The posters were donated by Patriot Mobile, a Christian wireless provider tied to a political action committee that spent big money to help elect conservatives to North Texas school board seats, including in South Lake, where this controversy is occurring. Now, the posters match up with the requirements of the law, but go a little further, because they also feature light stars in the background, lawyers noted. Uh, the po and therefore, they were saying the posters from Patriot Mobile are non-compliant for multiple reasons. In the cease and desist letter, uh, it stated that the posters in question contain no fewer than 31 fully or partially visible five-pointed stars, all of which are prohibited by the plain language in the statute. Uh, parents attempted to notify North Texas districts, including Carroll, Keller, and Grapevine Coleyville, of the noncompliance and requested school officials replace any Patriot Mobile posters with compliant ones. Posters on, that they provided that included um, the, nat the national motto with God written in rainbow lettering above the American and Texas flags. So the, the arguments here um, are that, you know, while the legislature passed this law uh, to set a, in their words, to set a good example for school children, so we are taking action to ensure schools do just that and conspicuously display compliant posters that everyone is sure to love equally. And that was from an attorney uh, named Trenton Lacey, who said in a statement, um, the, the uh, legal counsel for Carroll school officials is reviewing the, the order. Um, according to a spokesperson for the Keller Independent School District, said in a statement that the district also had received the cease and desist request. And, you know, while they are not going to comment on something that is in, in the process of uh, lit pending or potential litigation, um, are saying that, you know, they, they aren't going to say anything on it. But, you know, it, it continues that it will be uh, a fight. This fight has been brewing uh, throughout the month of August. And, um, you know, it, it's just something we're going to have to see with what happens. In a related matter, 
in the South Lake District, uh, one of the parents there attempted to donate uh, In God We Trust signs at a Carroll School Board meeting, including one poster written in Arabic and others with rainbow lettering. Uh, the school board responded, a school board president rather, responded by saying that the schools already have enough posters displaying the national motto. And this was something that I also mentioned in uh, my story in the prior podcast. Um, Trustee President Cam Bryant said during the meeting that the district doesn't have to display more than one copy at a time so as not to overwhelm campuses. Uh, and the Texas statute does not explicitly mention a limit in the same way that it does not explicitly mention that the lettering has to be in English. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, fighting over the, the little details will continue. And, you know, the idea and the parents that are trying to donate alternate signs are trying to work through uh, what appears to be something of a loophole in the law in that the language of the signs is not specified and uh, the other point that uh, isn't specified is that the law sets a finite limit of the number of signs. Um, the school board was saying you know one that uh, large numbers of signs uh, don't need to be hung that the tense of the law conveys that school only had to hang one donated copy. Um, and he added that the requirement applies solely to the national motto as it is written into the law, which is in English. So it looks like uh, this fight is going to be won over the, the minutia, the details, uh, to see if uh, a, a you know, court will determine that a sign that conforms to the content requirements, Texas flag, American flag, and the words in God we trust on a blue background uh, does not specify that those words need to be in English because it is not explicitly stated in the law. Uh, and you know that uh, there is a limit to the number of signs that can be posted in a school uh, that that limit is being set at one because there's also no language uh, that explicitly sets how many signs can be hung. The law is being, quote, interpreted, close quote, to reference just one sign uh, because it refers to the sign in the singular uh, manner. However, you know, um, I'm not in Texas, but I would, would be willing to bet some money that, you know, Texas schools that have receive the posters have hung more than one copy in their schools it just seems like they would so we will keep track of this and bring you any further updates uh, this is turning into a, a rather fascinating story uh, about uh, what goes on in local politics so that plays into our theme so we will keep you posted all right we're going to pivot here and um, talk about an article i found that re-raises the specter of Jim Crow laws and uh, you know in you know here in 2022 that we still face the kind of discriminatory practices that were rampant during the uh, Jim Crow era in the the post-Civil War post-Reconstruction South and uh, this comes from salon.com and a, a website called Paddabrook 
whitelawmakers.com, where I found it. Some 130 years ago, white lawmakers gathered in Jackson, Tallahassee, Richmond, and other state capitals across the former Confederacy and rewrote their state constitutions to enshrine white supremacy. Over the last week, Mississippi and Florida have offered modern-day examples of Jim Crow-era voter suppression that endures to this day, enacted by state legislatures, enabled by governors with White House ambitions, and enforced by federal judges and that counties to keep hundreds of thousands of citizens disproportionately black from the polls. So, you know, this this article talks about, you know, what's going on in terms of uh, felony disenfranchisement, uh, such measures as poll taxes, literacy tests, and Byzantine voter registration procedures was among the most effective tools used by racist Southern legislators to effectively nullify the Reconstruction Amendments to the U.S. Constitution across the old Confederacy and prevent black citizens from actually exercising their supposed new rights. Lawmakers turned crimes they believed most likely to be committed by poor black people, such as petty theft, burglary, and forgery, into felonies, and then stripped anyone convicted of those crimes from being able to cast a ballot. You know, and you know, the article cites that no one bothered to conceal their intent, and it quotes, let's tell the truth, let's tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe, proclaimed Solomon Saladin Calhoun, president of the 1890 Mississippi Convention. We came here, and this is a quote, we came here to exclude the Negro. The single black delegate had been murdered days before his bullet-riddled body left in the summer heat as a warning. The violence and state-sanctioned suppression worked. Black turnout plummeted across the South, and prison populations soared. In Mississippi, the number of black voters immediately dropped by 88%. Fewer than 8,700 black citizens remained on the rolls. In Florida, black turnout tumbled to 11%, while the black percentage of the prison population soared to 85% and beyond, more than half of them jailed on petty theft and larceny charges. But this isn't a history-led lesson, according to the article. These laws effectively remain in place today. Um, you know, and it, it says, uh, in 1890, the president of Mississippi's uh, 1890 Constitutional Convention said, as I quoted, we came here to exclude the Negro. Last, last week, a federal court found no proof that Constitution was motivated by discriminatory intent. Really? So, last Wednesday, the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit upheld the Miss Mississippi constitutional provision, astonishingly finding no proof that it was motivated by discriminatory intent. Um, didn't they say they came to exclude the Negro? Okay. And decreeing that any taint associated with has been cured um, to tell that to the 235,152 235, Mississippians 
who can't vote because of a felony conviction. More than 10% of the state's voting age population, according to the sentencing project, a majority of them black. In Florida, meanwhile, a supermajority of voters repealed the felony disenfranchisement uh, segment in 2018 via a statewide initiative, only to have the gerrymandered GOP legislature replace it with a poll tax. The initiative overwhelmingly approved by voters reenfranchised 1.4 million Floridians and created a second chance in a state where felony conviction previously amounted to permanent civic death. But the new restrictions just al allowed just 67,000 people to register. And again, that's of 1.4 million. The state also has been unable to tell the formerly incarcerated how much they owe and unwilling to create any transparent database that shows who is eligible to register and who is not. So, like so many other, uh, you know, scenarios that we talk about, and we talked about the Florida uh, re-enfranchisement re and then subsequent disenfranchisement uh, on this show um, back when when it, it occurred. Um, it, it is, you know, proof, as we always say, that vigilance and diligence are two of the tools that we have to use to hold our legislators accountable for what the wishes of the people are. You know, again, 1.4 million people were eligible to have their voting rights restored. The legislature, because of gerrymandering, uh, was able to knock that number down to 67,000. Uh, more proof that, you know, the, the uh, idea and concept and practice of gerrymandering needs some, some serious scrutiny, some serious uh, surgery, and, you know, some, an exorcism to remove it from our political process. And, you know, we will continue to shine a light on this. We will continue to talk about, you know, the effects of gerrymandering. But to, to my mind, nothing is more clear than the Florida example that shows how, you know, the, the staging of districts to super empower one group over another uh, just continues to be a, a, a pain, a bane, in the honest political process and the civil rights of people in this country. So we'll continue on. We got a few more stories to talk about. Of course, we couldn't go a week without talking about former president and Mar-a-Lago, so we'll touch on that as well. Uh, but we have a couple of more uh, issues to deal with along those lines, which we will get to right after this break and public service announcement about the upcoming uh, Lung Cancer Federation walk in WJMS. Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice media sponsor for the American Lung Association's 2022 Lung Force Walk, Bridgewater, taking place on Saturday, September 17th at Duke Island Park in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org bridgewater. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. 
And we're back. Thank you for staying with us. And uh, thank you for listening to that public service announcement. Um, please support the WJMS media efforts uh, with the Lung Cancer Foundation and Lung Cancer Initiatives. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of our owner and founder and CEO, um, Jams, you'll know that uh, this is a subject that uh, not only is near and dear to her heart, but it is one uh, that she uh, battles as a cancer survivor uh, on a daily basis. So uh, your help and your support are greatly appreciated. Please do what you can, and uh, we thank you for that. So back to the news. And as I said, uh, it, it is hard these days to go a week without uh, talking about you know, the former president, Donald Trump, and you know his latest uh, ex escapades and you know as as we mentioned on this show and as you've heard across all of the uh, media outlet platforms um, the uh, FBI and Department of Justice executed a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago and uh, found additional documents that had not been returned by the former president's uh, staff uh, as requested in the, uh, the request and subsequent subpoena. So the Department of Justice uh, obtained a warrant and the FBI went down and searched uh, the Mar-a-Lago residence of Donald Trump uh, for additional documents. And surprise, surprise, they found uh, additional boxes of materials. So one of the big questions that has been garnering just a ton of media attention on both sides, uh, you know, liberal and conservative, is what was contained in these documents. And uh, the, the pressure has been mounting and a federal judge uh, has unsealed a more detailed inventory list. Now you recall that uh, the subpoena uh, or rather the search warrant, which was made public, uh, included what was called a receipt, which is required anytime the government uh, removes items uh, seized during a search warrant, they give the owner a uh, documented receipt of what they uh, walked away with. So that included, you know, just boxes and boxes I believe the, there was 15 additional boxes on top of the um, the 15 or 20 in the initial return uh, after the subpoena so now um, the list of documents that were removed uh, from Mar-a-Lago based on the search warrant on August 8th um, they show that a total of uh, 13,000 97 items were removed from the residence resort among them over 100 classified documents including 31 documents marked confidential 54 documents marked secret and 18 documents marked top secret also listed according to the article uh, were 43 empty folders with classified banners and 28 empty folders labeled return to staff secretary slash military aid. Now, 
the the that last item is one that uh, has received a lot of discussion in media circles over the past week uh, as everybody is wondering whether or not uh, a were there documents in those folders that are no longer there or you know b were they just empty documents that were included you know um, you have you know a file drawer and you have empty folders that you use to put documents in etc um, according to uh, top national security attorney Brad Moss uh, the very first question the FBI would ask the person who had in their home office 43 empty folders with classified banners is where did the documents from these folders go um, the list includes categories but not specific details of what the items are obviously to protect the classified nature of the documents and it appears structured by how the items were packed so rather than total quantity it lists items in each uh, carton or item for example it's you know the list says item number five uh, documents from office includes 396 US government documents or photographs without classification markings and item number six documents from office includes another 640 US government documents or photographs without classification uh, markings so while it, it is highly unlikely that we will see you know any kind of uh, intimate detail on these documents um, we are getting a picture painted uh, that shows that uh, there were potentially um, you know national security uh, level documents that were included all of in, in all of these um, the the other thing is the list shows in more detail uh, how the items which were marked as highly classified were co-mingled with personal items like clothes books and news articles uh, indeed item number 10 box container from storage room which was one of the items includes 30 magazines newspapers press articles and other printed material dated between 10 2006 and 12 2019 11 government documents with confidential classification markings 21 u.s documents with secret classification markings three articles of clothing or gift items one book and 255 u.s government documents or photographs without classification markings so you know in, in as we see this breakdown keep in mind that um, documents relating to the work of the president of the united states do not belong to the president of the united states under the presidential records act uh, which was signed into law after the uh, Watergate crisis uh, of the, the late 70s that led to the resignation of President Nixon. It was made into law that all documents, notes, or you know anything else related to the working uh, of the president were the property of the U.S. government, which is holding it in trust for the American people. In other words, those documents don't belong to the president, they belong to the people, and the government is entrusted with keeping them safe for the American people. Now, that doesn't mean that 
you know, presidents can't access those records. Um, you know, most notably, you've heard a lot of arguments coming from the right about how former President Obama has, you know, 31 million documents. Uh, and the, the, the fact of that is that those documents are part of the, the contents of, you know, his presidential library which is uh, managed and run by the um, National Archive, uh, much like you know, documents being held you know, in Washington and other locations. And while he may have access to them, uh, he cannot take them home. You know, they, they are intended to be referenced and researched in sight, you know, in the facility um, under you know, secure conditions uh, and even those documents that are of a sensitive nature with regard to national security are not ones that um, he has ready access where, you know, he could pack them into a briefcase and take them home to work on them over the weekend. So, you know, the the arguments that are being stated um, stretch the truth. I guess you could say that to be kind of fair. But in reality, um, former President Trump has uh, no privilege to hold on to government documents uh, without clearance from the National Archive, uh, and uh, particularly in storing them in a unsecure location that doesn't meet the guidelines set out in the Presidential Records Act or the rules under the National uh, Archive. So, you know, it, it's clear we're going to hear more and more about this. Uh, it is likely that um, we will not see any contents of these documents uh, in probably any of our lifetimes. Uh, and I, I use by example the information uh, that was gathered and, and kept as top secret regarding the assassination of President Kennedy which happened in 1963, um, still we don't have a 100% disclosure of those documents and the ones that we have seen remain heavily redacted uh, to this day, nearly, you know, well, 60 years later. So it, it's going to be a very long time before we learn any hard facts and details about what was on those documents, if we ever do. So related in, in, in the ongoing reporting, what we're starting to see is kind of the, the mechanism by which you know, we got to all these boxes winding up in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there's an article that came out on uh, September 2nd uh, that uh, cited uh, the New York Times uh, as reported in Business Insider uh, that uh, reads the headline, Trump didn't trust the Pentagon's method of disposing of classified documents and kept unread files in a cardboard box near his desk. And again, that's um, according to sourcing uh, from the New York Times. Uh, the article states, you know, during his time in office, former President Donald Trump kept a cardboard box near his desk in which he stored documents that he had not, that he had yet to read, excuse me, 
Um, the Times spoke to former Trump administration officials and staffers who gave some insight into how he handled documents. According to the outlet, Trump had mistrusted burn bags, which were the designated means by which the Pentagon and CIA disposed of top secret documents. And those are essentially just what they sound like. They put the documents in a, uh, a pouch and they burn it. Uh, per the unnamed officials uh, that spoke to the Times, Trump didn't believe the material would be destroyed. In ten, instead, he resorted to tearing up documents, including those with his handwriting on them, and tossing them into the toilet. Remember, we had the, uh, the reporting that talked about uh, Trump talking about the toilets in the White House being constantly clogged up. Well, he was shoving paper down the toilets, and uh, apparently that was at least part of the reason why the toilets kept getting clogged. Um, the Times also reported that Trump would place unread briefing books and other files in a cardboard box near his desk. Per the outlet, the box would get taken away when it was full and was brought with Trump aboard Air Force One when he traveled. Now, while officials didn't recall seeing top secret uh, documents going into the box, they told the Times that there was a fair amount of chaos behind the scenes in the last days of the Trump administration. Now, the other thing to keep in mind uh, with the paragraph I just read prior, uh, where he talked about putting these boxes on Air Force One, uh, again, one of the big concerns that um, you know, Department of Justice and you know, National Defense and, and all of that have is what happened during his custody of those documents outside of the White House and more specifically after his presidency ended. Uh, these are details that uh, are just starting to see the light of day. So, you know, uh, according to John Bolton, who was uh, Trump's former national security advisor, he uh, told the Times that Trump would occasionally remarked about how something was interesting and asked to keep it. You know, for Trump, every time you ask for something back, it implies you don't trust him, according to Bolton. Uh, adding that staffers would not always succeed in trying to get something back from the former president. Uh, a representative at Trump's post-presidential press office, you know, didn't have an immediate response or comment uh, to the article. Uh, the FBI is investigating whether Trump broke three federal laws, and these were the laws that were cited on the search warrant uh, that they used when they went through Mar-a-Lago. And these included the Espionage Act. By keeping classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, um, the uh, agents seized 11 sets of classified documents uh, in the search warrant uh, search of Mar-a-Lago. Um, according to the Washington Post, some of these were marked top secret and concerned nuclear weapons. So, you know, this, this whole scenario, um, you know, is, is still unraveling, still unrolling out ahead of us. Um, but what we can see if we string the dots together is, you know, someone who, as, as we all know by now, had very little regard for uh, rules 
and uh, particularly, you know, the, the rules of law where they, you know, interfered with what he believed that he was entitled to do uh, or, or other reasons uh, revolving around him. So, you know, what we're seeing is that uh, the, the outgoing administration, uh, Donald Trump, uh, gathered up bunches of documents, you know, in one, uh, as I said in the article uh, prior, there were something like 30, 13,097 items that were just removed in the boxes that were obtained during the search warrant. Um, prior searches netted you know, additional documents. I believe the total I have seen reported is somewhere north of 31,000 uh, unique documents that were removed from uh, the White House or, or from secure locations in Washington and ended up you know, stored in various areas around Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, and of course, you know, Trump is quoted as saying that, you know, the, the documents weren't theirs, they're mine. And, you know, to a certain extent, some of those documents, yes, are Donald Trump. Uh, you know, full, full disclosure, full truth. Some of the documents that were seized that were collected up with all of the others included documents that have been reported part of uh, attorney-client privileged uh, communications between Donald Trump and his lawyers. Uh, those have been identified and uh, ostensibly will be returned to the former president in due process. Um, additionally, the you know documents uh, that were seen, and you know there's you know a a well circulated photo of you know a selection of these documents laying on a floor, you know, in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, some of them are, you know, just pictures of the uh, classified folders with the markings. Others are pictures of documents where the text has been redacted. Um, all of these, you know, are, you know, part of the ongoing investigation and, you know, remains to be seen what's going to, to happen with the former president as, as a result of this. Um, the, the thing to keep in mind and, and to kind of give some perspective and understanding, uh, what the, the documents lay out for the former president uh, is similar in nature to uh, what happened in the case of you know, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, where you know, he obtained and published uh, thousands and thousands of government documents that he had no right to possess or distribute. And also, you know, Edward Snowden, who, you know, was an espionage uh, agent who uh, stole, you know, again, thousands of uh, sensitive U.S. documents uh, and were, were posting those on the Internet. As a result of those actions, both of those two gentlemen ended up needing to live in exile from the U.S. Um, you know, in other countries for years. I, I believe uh, Assange has been in hiding for going on a decade now. 
and Edward Snowden uh, similarly is somewhere around seven or eight years that uh, they have not been able to return to the United States because of outstanding warrants for their arrest for violations of much the same laws that Donald Trump has violated, the Espionage Act and, and so forth. So those two guys uh, ended up having to flee the country. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is still roaming around the U.S. doing his, you know, his rallies, talking his talk and all of that stuff. And it, it begs the question, and um, I, I have not yet heard a definitive answer given, probably because the Department of Justice has not yet filed any formal charges. Um, but, you know, at, at some point, if, you know, the law is to be upheld, um, some type of severe restriction on Donald Trump's freedom of movement uh, needs, will need to be exercised. Um, it does bring in the question, and we have heard this question raised on, on multiple occasions, as to whether or not these charges will preclude him from running for elected office uh, in the future. Uh, the, the, the clock is still ticking on those items. Uh, it remains to be seen uh, what exactly Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice are going to do with the former president. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the news media outlets, a lot of the pundits, including many former Trump officials, you know, such as, you know, former Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, you know, uh, others are saying that, you know, the president's position is somewhat indefensible here in that he possessed these documents. Uh, they were taken out of the White House, out of Washington, D.C., out of secure locations and stored in an unsecure scenario at Mar-a-Lago, which is a, you know, aside from being the president's residence, it's a resort. There are people that come there to, to you know, spend tons of money, but stay there uh, for vacation. And, you know, according to interviews given with um, his attorney, you know, that Donald Trump frequently has visitors in his office. Uh, top secret documents were found in his desk drawers. Um, and, you know, the, the alarm bells are ringing in the, um, the National Defense Offices and the Pentagon and, and Department of Justice as to who has seen these documents. Um, you know, has the, you know, has the staff at Mar-a-Lago been infiltrated, infiltrated by foreign agents? Um, you know, have, you know, photocopies or photographs of these documents been been circulated to you know adversarial parties you know uh, against the United States um, you know and and there are other questions you know it it is reported that the Saudi government who was very interested in getting help from the Trump administration uh, on its nuclear program um, raised and, and paid Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, uh, $2 billion. What was that money for? You know, again, the Saudis have also uh, paid more than a billion dollars to set up 
golf tournaments, a series of golf tournaments at Trump owned, you know, golf courses in various locations around the world. You know, if if you if you watch, you know, any you know mobster movies throughout history, um, one of the ways you launder money is you support the business interest of the person you wish to give the money to. So you're not handing them, a, you know, an envelope or a bag or a briefcase full of cash. However, you are giving this cash to this business entity who will return it to the the individual through uh, quote legitimate close quote means. So it, it remains to be seen how all of this is going to unwind. Um, but, you know, my question is, at what point? Uh, is the Department of Justice going to you know, issue a slate of charges against you know, President Trump, former President Trump? And you know, at, at what point uh, is all of this going to play into what's on the horizon for both the November midterms and the 2024 general election? Um, it, it just goes... All of this just goes to, you know, kind of keep the chaos factor uh, sloshing around our political system as no one is quite sure uh, what's going to happen in the future. So the the end of the day, we will keep, you know, on top of it. We'll try and bring you some of the elements of this story that may not be getting uh, has as deep a, a media coverage uh, that the headline machines will will allow uh, now and will um, make sure that we keep you informed as to what's going on. So what do we learn from the events to date of what has transpired uh, with the former president and the documents and, and all of that? What we have learned is that we need to more carefully vet the people that we are electing into office, whether it's state offices, um, local offices, you know, national offices. What we are seeing in the headlines, you know, from the states uh, is more and more candidates who are openly opposed to uh, the, the progress that is being made by minorities in this country that are openly opposed to issues that impact the lives of LGBTQ, you know, IA plus uh, individuals in this country, um, and that are uh, setting a hardcore extreme right conservative viewpoint for all issues related to progress that can be made by, you know, the 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 everyday rank and file people in this country. Um, you know, as we've talked about on this, this show and this podcast for many, many times over the past nearly three years, um, if we the people are not paying attention to what our political leadership and our political officials are doing at all levels, up and down the ticket, um, we are... You know, setting ourselves up for very difficult times. You know, think about, you know, kind of the, the elements that we've talked about on this podcast over 
the last month or so. We've talked about the possibility that's moving forward of a second constitutional convention where if they have their way, many of these issues that are being uh, debated, legislated, and adjudicated at the state level will become part of the national set of laws. Um, you know, and look at what's, what's happening in our school systems, what's happening with the initiatives to eliminate Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, which are the, 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 the safety net for our senior citizens. You know, all of these things are issues that are in the hands of our local, state, and federal politicians. So, you know, as always, we need to do the diligence, do the research, dig wider, dig deeper, and make sure that the people that we are voting for are representing the way we, the people, think and that they go to their elected positions with the understanding that we sent them there and that we can take them out of there. You know, so there's a lot more on this that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks as we roll up toward the November midterms. Uh, obviously, you know, now that we have gone through uh, Labor Day, the political season, uh, the, the heat on that stove is going to get turned way up. We are going to be inundated with political ads, with political talk, with political speakers, with talking heads and all of that. So it is incumbent on us as the voters. It is important that we listen carefully, that we watch closely, and that we ask questions continuously of the candidates, of our elected officials, and if they're not matching what our wishes are that we find other people to give our vote to so on that note we're going to wrap up this edition thank you all as always for listening uh, this is steve i host it each week i look forward to it uh, really appreciate uh, your thoughts and comments please send email to firedupradio at yahoo.com if you wish to get in touch with me and I'll be happy to discuss any of the things that I've brought up on this show or any of my shows uh, with you at any time. Everybody, please stay safe. Uh, have a, a good rest of the day here as we wind up our Labor Day weekend. Have a safe week. And I look forward to bringing another podcast your way in seven days. Mm-hmm.